0: We've been in a series called You Asked For It, You Asked For It, and the whole idea, this is different than maybe normal preaching because what we're doing is we're just taking the questions that you have submitted and we're trying to answer those from Scripture. And there are times the Bible speaks very specifically to something, and we apply that. There are times that we have to go to principles of God's Word to develop the answer to the question that you have. And here's just the disclaimer. This is God's Word. You may not agree with it, but we believe this is the Word of God as it speaks to these topics. We know it's not culturally popular. In fact, Scripture is becoming more and more Countercultural today because we live in a very post-Christian, post-modern society. If you haven't noticed that through the news and other outreach, the church is not very highly viewed today, uh, politically and or culturally. But we get that. But we're unashamed of God's word, and we believe that for us as followers of Jesus, this is where we go when we have questions that we're wrestling with. In fact, one of the things we're going to focus today are cultural hot topics—things that have just been uh, politicized. Uh, uh, and, and generally very polar views on some of these things we're going to talk about today. And then just some other hot topics as it relates to the faith community and culture. We're going to try to address quickly today. But before we even jump into those sorts of questions, there was a great question submitted about this whole idea of when somebody talks to me about this is what I believe, how should I respond? And this was the question that said this way, when someone tells me, well, this is what I believe, then my response is a gentle but that isn't biblical i'm sure there's a much better response what would that be and maybe you've bumped into this where you know that somebody has a viewpoint different than yours and your answer is well that's just not biblical the reality behind that kind of answer is that is not what a skeptical society wants to hear from you okay and here's why Uh, People who are outside of the faith or outside the faith community do not view Scripture the same way you do, all right? We believe this to be the infallible Word of God worthy of instruction for our lives, but not everybody views it that way. How many of you remember perhaps a time in your life when maybe you viewed the Bible as nothing but rules, right? I mean, that might have been your viewpoint, oh, just a bunch of rules and who needs a bunch of more rules, right? So that's how some people approach it. And when you answer questions about issues of faith or culture, and you say, well, that's not biblical, that's not going to go very far with somebody who just views the Bible as a bunch of rules and regulations, right? So what we recognize is that the old song we grew up with, Jesus loves me, this I know for the Bible tells me so, when you try to tell a, a, a person who's not in the faith, well, the Bible tells me so, that's why. That may not be a most, uh, a most reasonable answer for them. And so how, how should we approach this? I think that one of the things we need to do is make sure, one, that as followers of Jesus, we're armed with the truth provided in Scripture. And friends, we're all without excuse when it comes to having the resources to navigate Scripture. We have more resources today than ever before when it comes to studying Scripture, in fact, you can download it to your own personal device. It's that readily available. But the problem is we have a lot of Christians who still do not understand what they believe or what Scripture has to say. That's why these kinds of series, I think, are, are very important because what I'm trying to do is not just say, for the Bible tells me so. What we're also trying to do is look at what is the grand narrative. It's not just rules in Scripture, but there is a narrative in Scripture. There is God revealing himself and his plan for humankind in Scripture. And we see it through not only life examples of people in the Bible, but through wisdom teachings and through poetry and through the teachings of Jesus. We begin to see a grand narrative that has a message behind it besides for the Bible tells me so. So one of the things we have to look at is the same thing we do as parents. How many know you have a toddler or maybe a little bit older kid, and this is the most commonly asked question, why? You know, maybe it's why can't I or why, and, and, and our default parent, parent answer is what? Yeah, because or because I said so, and, and it's as though we, we have this secret information as authority that just says no to you because I say so. And how many know that as your kids get older, that because I say so, doesn't fly? And the truth is, as parents, I want to arm my children to be able to navigate the whys of life. And if all I tell them is because I said so, then when they're an adult, I don't want them saying, well, because my dad said no. (laughs) I want them to know why they should Yes, do something, or no, avoid something. And what do we do? We have to take the time, it's labor intensive as parents, to explain the whys. Now, I don't always explain a why to a toddler who's not going to get it anyway, right? But as they get older, there's time to take to explain The why behind your answer. The same thing is applied biblically, and that's what we're doing in this series. We're taking your questions, and rather than just quoting Scripture to you or giving you a rule, the hope is to give us the understanding to go to Scripture, not just look at the the verse chapter, but look at the grand narrative that's happening that builds an answer to a culture that wants some questions answered. And I believe that the Bible is full of wisdom. And we can answer questions rightly by going to the Word. What what I'm hoping is to instill in the hearts of not only believers, but those that are skeptic, not just blind obedience. I mean, I believe there are times God calls us absolutely to obedience, and I'm not disregarding that. But I want people to make informed, reasonable decisions about why they choose to do something or why they would choose to avoid something. Not just blind obedience, where I think there are times that's necessary. I think there are also times for Christians to become armed with reason of why we do these or don't do these things. So that's kind of just a backdrop for approaching some of these questions. So here's the question around some cultural hot topics. Here it is. Where does the Bible stand on abortion, homosexuality, aliens, legal and illegal, Um, and not like spaceship aliens, but I think you get the idea. So it's on immigration, Okay, These are hot points in our faith that have become politicized, and, and obviously, certainly, they have. Um, so let's take these on one by one. We'll, we'll pass one because we spent two weeks on one of the topics, all right? But we will take on abortion first. And, and even before we talk about some of these hot topics, for some of you, this is not just a hot topic. This is a life topic. This is something that's been real for you. And I know that any time we open Scripture and begin to speak to these real-life issues, everybody has a story they bring to it. And as we talk about abortion, the, the, the goal is not to condemn anybody in the room. It's to open Scripture, see what it has to say about the sanctity of life, and then know that we have to respond in some fashion to that. All right? So please hear my heart. This isn't to condemn, it's to bring truth to the surface, and know that God is gracious and forgiving and loving. And whatever our backstory is, it is all something we can bring to the cross and we can find healing and forgiveness for, right? But abortion defined as basically the deliberate termination of a human pregnancy. And in this definition, it's the intentional taking the life of an unborn baby. Traditional Christian view, both in mainline faith for a lot of denominations and evangelical faith, is that um, life begins at conception. All right, so that's kind of the, the, the biblical traditional view is life begins at conception. So the taking of human life, even an unborn child, is considered in that regard the taking away of a life, which the Ten Commandments speak to. It says, do not murder, all right? So additionally, the Bible always recognizes the prenatal phase, and this is the part we have to understand as Christians, the Bible recognizes the prenatal phase of life as that of a child, not just a mere appendage of a woman to be aborted at will, okay? So there is life, not just an extension of the body. So when the Virgin Mary, for example, was chosen by God to be the one that would birth the Messiah, the angel came and spoke to her, right? And in Luke 131, we see the passage of Scripture. She, it, it, the angel said, you will conceive and give birth to a son. Now, this predates all this actually happening. All right, but son, there's a word there that is spoken of a life of a young child, okay? So you will conceive and give birth to a son and you are to call him Jesus. A little bit later in Luke chapter one, the angel also informs Mary that Elizabeth is going to have a baby. His name's gonna be John, Right? And so in Luke 1.36, even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child. That is the same word that was used of son in the announcement given to Mary, a child in her old age. And What we see happening here in Scripture is that it makes it clear that the prenatal phase both of Jesus and of John were recognized as individual beings even while they were in the womb. Not an extension of of mom, but an individual being. So scripture makes it clear that he sees and knows the individuality of life while it is in the womb. Also, the Bible recognizes that God is active in the creative process of forming new life. We see it in Isaiah 44. The prophet is speaking on behalf of the Lord. He says, this is what the Lord says. He who made you, who formed you in the womb, and will help you. Psalm 139 verse 13, David Picks up this grand theme often used as a scripture around the Sanctity of Life Sunday that we have each year in January. He says, For you created my inmost being. Now, understand before we even read this, we look at this passage now through all of modern technology and modern science and modern medicine where you can see the baby moving and all the things that are happening in the womb. David didn't have this luxury, but he knew. There was a grand design that was happening that was unseen by human eyes. So he says, you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. Verse 15, my frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Not that he was made in the dirt, but this is speaking of the womb. Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. So the Bible recognizes both from what David said and what we're going to look at here shortly, that God has plans for the unborn child. Only he knows the potential of this new life. When God called Jeremiah, we see an example of that. The prophet of the Old Testament, we see it in Jeremiah 1.5. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I set you apart. I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. There are times I stop and think about that verse, and I think about the countless now, millions of aborted children just in America alone, and think, have we aborted the answer to a lot of life's challenges? Maybe we've aborted the one who would discover the cure for cancer. Maybe we've aborted the next great evangelist. God has plans for children in the womb. Plans that he sees. Now, when we come to a conversation like this and and we ask, well, well, what about those who miscarried their baby? Didn't God have a plan for that child? Why did my child die in my womb? And I've sat with families and explored that question together as I've done several graveside services for those who have lost a baby due to miscarriage. And every year, I'm a part of of a gathering of uh, of hospital staff and funeral home staff who come together together to have a memorial service for all of the unborn children who had died either during, or during pregnancy or in, in honor of those who have, who have um, died uh, at birth. And how terrible and hard, could you imagine, <laughs> how difficult that time is for a minister to be ministering to families who were like, I had hopes and dreams for this life. Why would God take it away? You know, and I have to just, here's what I do. All I can do is grieve with that family and pray with them. I don't have answers. When life is, is unintentionally lost, I don't. we have to leave that into the sovereignty of God, and there's things we can't answer this side of eternity. But when we make that decision, that's a whole different story. In fact, written into the Old Testament covenant, into the laws, was a sanctity of life focus. Look at what um, command was given to Moses, Exodus 21, verses 22 and 23. If people are fighting and they hit a pregnant woman... And she gives birth prematurely, but there is no serious injury. The offender must be fined, whatever the woman's husband demands, and the court allows. But if there is serious injury, and this implies both to the unborn child and the mother, then you are to take life for life. Do you see the principle he's establishing? This unborn child is life, and his life or her life is equal to the life of the adult that caused the harm. Um, and there's a loss of life for life. This is a law written in to guard the sanctity of human life. So it's clear from Scripture that God values and the and life is precious of the unborn. But as we talk about this, I know that bringing this up brings up for maybe some of you a story, an experience, a reality for you. And I think it's very clear. We're going to talk about it more next week on forgiveness. But here's the thing. God loves you and He forgives. And if that's been your story and you've got shame and grief and regret over those things, I just remind you that we come to a God who is gracious. And he wants us to understand, yes, the value of life, but he also wants us to understand that there is nothing beyond the reach of the cross. We can come to him and find forgiveness. In fact, I just want to pause right now and just pray. Jesus, I I know that as we talk about these things, that there are people who, who experience this in real life. And they have their own concerns. They have their own feelings about this. And I thank you that your word tells us that if we confess our sins, that you're faithful and just to forgive us and to purify us from all unrighteousness. I pray that they would not sense shame in these moments because with your forgiveness there comes a sense of release. But we have to remind ourselves of that. So I pray for any who have already sought forgiveness but still feel shame. Lord, I pray they would rest in the fact that you have forgiven and that is done. They have right standing with you today. Lord, I just pray your ministry of healing for those that have hurts due to miscarriage or or hurts due to abortion. God, I just pray healing in their heart today. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, the question moved on from abortion to homosexuality, and we spent two weeks on that topic, so go back and refer to parts two and three of this series as we tackled those important questions. Aliens. Aliens. What does the Bible say about illegal aliens or or about immigration? Um, Let's first remember that if you're an American, you at one time probably originated from a different country. Uh, And we did not treat our hosts very well who were living in this country when we came. So remember, all of us come from a position, unless you're Native American, all of us come from a position of being an illegal alien or at least an alien into this country or born as a a family that originated in that way. So I think all of us have a context to remember. Now, I know that we're part of the United States of America and we're this great melting pot of many nations, and I'm glad we have that sense of diversity. But remember, we all bring something to this conversation if we like it or not. Now, it's been obviously super politicized, all right? So let's talk about, well, then what does the Bible say about immigration? What does the Bible say about foreigners living among us? And you know what? The Bible says stuff about it. In fact, when we go to the Old Testament, we see what God's view is for his community When it deals with people who are outside of that community. So we know that the nation of Israel was established from Adam's, sorry, well, ultimately, yeah, from Adam's, but from Abraham's seed. And so Abraham had Isaac, Isaac had Jacob, Jacob had 12 sons, which became the 12 tribes of Israel. And we discover that in their story, they find themselves, because of harsh famine in their homeland, in Egypt, they'd moved down there during a time of famine because Joseph was there. And so the whole family moves to Egypt and are basically foreigners. They're living among Egyptians. They're treated well for a time until a new pharaoh comes into authority years later who doesn't remember Joseph. And they are now treated as a threat and they're forced into in terrible, cruel Slavery. And ultimately, God hears their cry of deliverance and sends Moses. And we know the story. He goes and through miraculous powers uh, displayed by God, they leave Egypt. But guess what? It wasn't just the Egyptians, or sorry, the Israelites who left Egypt, there were foreigners among them. In fact, they picked up foreigners as they journeyed through on their, on their season of moving toward the promised land. And so God, in, his, again, in the covenant law or in, in the Mosaic law, gives some definition to how do we deal with these people who are not Jewish, all right? So here it is, um, look at Deuteronomy chapter 10, verses 18 and 19. He defends, this is God, so listen to these words, he defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow and loves the foreigner residing among you. He gives them food and clothing. And you are to love those who are foreigners, for you yourselves were foreigners in Egypt. Leviticus 19.33. When a foreigner resides among you in your land, do not mistreat them. The foreigner residing among you must be treated as your native-born. Love them as yourself, for you were foreigners in Egypt. I am the Lord your God. So we see written into the Levitic code, into the, into the way that they structured their life as a community of followers of God, the nation of Israel, that they were to treat foreigners well, and to bring them in, provide for them. So we see that as the, the covenant of the Old Testament. We're going, but Kelly, remember, that's Old Testament. That's like old. There's new, right? Well, remember what happened when Jesus came and he talked about the Old Testament? He said things like, you've heard that it was said, but I tell you. And he said, you heard that it was said, do not commit adultery, but I tell you. If you look at a woman lustfully, you commit adultery in your heart, right? What was Jesus doing? He was taking the code which had become at that point so externally focused, just adhering to law without heart change. And so he drove the law into the hearts of people. In fact, the prophet Ezekiel and Jeremiah both spoke of a time that would be coming when the law would be written not on stone, but on the hearts of people. So the whole point was the Holy Spirit then would bring to life the essence of the law. How did Jesus sum up the law? Love the Lord your God with everything and love your neighbor as yourself. Do you remember the story of the example about who a neighbor was? It was a Samaritan, who was not considered a Jew, Samaritan was considered an outsider. And by the way, the Samaritan was the hero in the story. So we we begin to see what Jesus is trying to do. Then once the gospel message was, was shared by Jesus and he went to the cross and he died, a church established, right? Most of these were Jewish people because Jesus did come and preach to primarily the Jewish people who began to follow him. His disciples were all Jewish men, and they began to formulate the church. And guess what there was arguments about? How are we going to treat these outsiders? There are these people who are called Gentiles. They're not circumcised Jews like we are. What do we have to do? And so we see through the book of Acts the message moving not just for the Jewish people, but reaching out to foreigners, to encourage them to bring them into community, to bring them into the body of Christ So what we see happening then is the church embracing all races and being a caregiver for all people. We see in Galatians 3.26, so in Christ, this means those of us who are in that community of faith in Jesus, so in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith for all of you were baptized into Christ and clothed yourselves with Christ there is neither Jew nor Gentile neither slave nor free there is neither male nor female for you are all one in Christ Jesus and what he basically did was he stripped away national rights he stripped away gender identity he he basically said when we come to Christ we're entering a new citizenship and we look at each other differently We don't look at you based upon the color of your skin, the status that you are, or your gender. We look at you differently because we're citizens of a greater kingdom. I like the way that George Wood, who was our former superintendent of the Assemblies of God, stated in our position papers, if you're curious what the Assemblies of God believes on any of these issues, you can go to their website, ag.org, and you can look at position papers because we're part of that affiliation as an Assembly of God Church. And George Wood said this concerning immigration. He said, our fundamental task is to reach people for Jesus, whether they are legal or undocumented, whether they are citizens or refugees. We are to have a heart for the poor, the marginalized, the abused, the needy, and the stranger. So do I agree that they should go through the due process of immigration? Absolutely. My family did that. When we came down from Canada years ago, before I was even a glimmer in my great-great-great-grandfather's eye, right? They came down from Canada, and they came through the whole process of immigration, and I believe that people should make their journey that way. Now, don't we all wish it was that easy? It's not. There's a lot of complexity around this issue of immigration. And as a nation, this calls for wisdom. And we should be praying for people who are making decisions. And we should be communicating our viewpoint biblically to those that we have the authority to speak to in our own local government and upward. Because this is a real issue. And I'm so glad that there were churches that when various refugees came into our country seeking asylum, there were churches that rose up to help. It wasn't political. It was just, here are people who have need. Let's make sure they're fed and they're clothed. And they rose to the occasion and they served. And this, I believe, friends, is the call of God upon the church today. To reach the marginalized, to reach those who are underrepresented, to reach those who need to know the hope of Jesus. While I'm proud to be an American, and I'll spare you singing the song, but while I'm proud to be an American and I love this United States of America, I am called to a higher citizenry. You know that? So are you. Friends, here's the thing you gotta know USA is temporal. This is coming to an end. When exactly? I don't know. It's temporal. But the kingdom of God is eternal. And friends, you and I are part of the citizenship of that heaven. And guess what's going to happen up in heaven? There's not going to be an immigration line checking people's papers. They're looking for people whose hearts are fully committed to Jesus Christ. And we have a mission, friends, to reach people with the hope of the gospel without making it political. Now, in helping people, should I point them toward the, the legal process of becoming a citizen? Absolutely. Again, I think we need to help people in ways that are helpful. But we need to check our attitudes when it comes to dealing with those who have come into our country illegally. They have a story. They have a purpose. They're either fleeing something or looking for something. But let's make sure that, above all, we talk about the hope we have in Jesus and we are an expression of that The government will work out the rest of the details. We need to pray about that, but we need to have hearts that are in a posture to serve them. Next question, and we're going to end it with this one, and I'm not sure how I'm going to do it in 10 minutes, but I'll talk fast. I see more and more Christians drinking and posting on Facebook. Some only have a glass of wine, some drink a lot more. Uh, These are people who grew up in the church, so I don't understand it. Uh, let me just, before I even get into the essence of the question, let me, let me take one part of the, the question and, and, and make a point. A lot of people grew up in church. That does not equal spiritual maturity. Okay, is that something we, that we can all agree on? I've got peers that grew up in church with me, and today they are far from God in the way they live their life. So, church attendance, while I believe in it, does not equal life change. Okay? Uh, That takes a willing heart to yield to the work of the Holy Spirit and to live a committed life for Jesus Christ. So yes, I, I would hope that in the community of faith, where we grow up, people would maybe act a little different in their own private life or their public life outside of church. But really, we have no control over that. That's just something we're dealing with in American culture today. We preach Jesus. We hope people will live committed lives to Him. But the rest is up to God. So Church attendance does not equal spiritual maturity. No more than me sitting in a garage equals me being a car. Okay, I mean we can all understand that. So, so while we would hope people who are professing Christ would live certain ways, um, that might be viewed very differently by a lot of different people. Now, let's go to the question at hand, which I believe has to do with with consuming alcoholic beverages. So, I'm going to give kind of my personal perspective where I'm at, and then I'm going to talk what the Bible says. So, personally, I. Uh, I abstain from drinking alcohol personally. And there's multiple reasons for that. One, um, I am a minister of the gospel in the assemblies of God, and our doctrinal position in the assemblies of God, when it comes to our position on alcoholic beverages, is that we abstain from those because of multiple reasons, which I'll get into a moment later. So as a minister under that covering, I adhere to the bylaws and constitutions of what we say we're going to do as ministers. And so I abstain. Now, I have other brothers in the Foursquare movement, other churches who don't view that the same way. I'm not a Foursquare minister. I'm a minister under the Assemblies of God. And so I'm going to follow what I believe is I'm agreeing to when I step into that fellowship. So that's one reason. Secondly, I have a genetic disposition toward over-consuming alcohol, right? It's in my family tree, alcoholism is. And so I don't want to even step into those waters because I don't want that to become an issue. So that's secondly why I choose to abstain. Third, I I choose to abstain because I have seen what overindulgence in alcohol has done in the lives of countless people who have attended church, who I've bumped into in real life. I've seen the consequences and the effects of alcoholism. So my personal opinion may not be enough to answer this question because that's my personal opinion and where I stand on this. So now we've got to move to Scripture, right? We've got to look at what the Bible says. So I'm going to approach this question maybe a bit differently than you would assume I would. I'm not going to go right to, you know, thus saith the Lord, but here's something I think we have to pay attention to on a grander scale. Romans 12, 2. This is a great uh, translation from the message translation, but any translation will say something loosely the same thing, and it's this. Romans 12, two. don't become so well-adjusted to your culture that you fit in without even thinking. So here's an issue that I believe the American church is dealing with today. Under the banner of relevance, we're trying to become more like the community in which we live to appeal to the community in which we live. Now, while I believe there are certain things we need to make sure we are speaking relevantly to, which is the truth of Scripture in ways that people can take, embrace, understand. I think we need to preach relevance there. Some of you grew up in a church where the pastor said something and you don't even recall what it was because everything went over your head. So we want to make sure we can give application, but I don't compromise truth for the sake of relevance. I don't compromise on certain areas for the sake of relevance. But the church tends to do that. And this has happened over the years, right? Card playing, some of you, it was forbidden. The card deck of cards was in your house, you were going to hell. Some of you if you went to the movie theater you were you had to go Sunday and repent because you went to the movie theater. Some of you if you listened to rock and roll music, you had to go to the altar because you totally were an abomination in god's eyes and and over time we, we've recognized some things that maybe are Church tradition was doing that may have been noble but maybe a bit misguided, and all of us kind of grew up in that. But now we've tended to swing way the other way. So, alcohol becomes one of those issues when we talk about culture. So, what I want to talk about is what is your motivation? If you're one who consumes alcoholic beverages, I'm not here to condemn again. My question is, what is the motivation? Okay, what is the motivation now? When we talk about things like drinking, smoking, or any of these cultural hot topics, here's some things we have to understand. There is a cultural norm, okay? There is something the culture says is normal. There's a standard. And our cultural standard oftentimes will be contrary to biblical truth, right? Do you ever notice that anywhere else in, in life? Yeah. So while we know there's a cultural norm, we don't make our decisions only in this environment. Okay, Because we can get ourselves really in trouble. So there's another level. It's called community standard. That means people you actually do life with. Maybe it's your family of origin. Or maybe it's a group of, of people you hang out with regularly. You notice that there's a different set. Maybe you can call them values or standards within that organization. But some of them still might not be absolutely biblical. But they're standards that we tend to rise to or fall to. True? Okay. Then there is biblical standard. There's something the Bible has to say about issues. And I believe as followers of Jesus, yes, we want to make sure we're living in culture and can engage there, but we're not making all of our moral decisions based on this. Nor are we only making it based on our community standards among our friends and our families, because Lord knows sometimes there's a lot of dysfunction there and problems there. So we go to the biblical look. And we do that when it comes to alcohol consumption. So here's just a quick poll I want to do to kind of help set a stage for this, okay? Quick poll, and you can participate in this one, all right? So how many of you have been negatively impacted by someone else's use of alcohol? Okay, so raise a hand if you have been impacted by somebody, I'm not talking about yourself, but to somebody else's, okay, look around, everybody, look, just look around, I give you permission to crane your neck around, you're not gawking at people now, look at the hands, okay, hands down, next question, how many of you have been positively impacted by somebody else's alcoholic beverage consumption, raise a hand, okay, not too many, one, so I'm I'm not here to judge, I'm just saying, okay, we have to look at this through a different kind of lens, you understand what I'm saying, now, here's the next question, and I don't want to show hands because I don't want to embarrass or hear your stories later. But here's the question. How many of you would say that one of your greatest regrets happened in an environment where alcoholic beverages were being consumed? I don't have to raise a hand, but just think about it. Your greatest regret, one of them, happened in a context where alcoholic beverages were freely served. How many of you then would say, my proudest moment happened in that context where alcoholic beverages were being consumed? The reality is we know the potential of alcohol. Now, some people are going to treat this like we do gun control, and Lord knows I can't go there right now either. Uh, but I, I know people are going to say, well, it's the person not the name. You know, I get it. I get it. Now, based on that quick poll, I bring us back to the question. What is our motivation? What is our motivation? Because I believe, yes, I live in a culture, I live within community, but I have to live under a biblical standard. And there is a biblical standard that addresses these issues that we might call gray areas, but really, they may not be. Some folks have said, well, Kelly, under the banner of freedom in Christ, shouldn't drinking a beverage uh, that contains alcohol be an expression of that freedom? Okay. Paul takes this on. Because remember, Paul is not having his head buried in the sand when he teaches us things in, in his letters to the church. He was living in a real-life church who was really dealing with tensions revolving around cultural hot topics. And one of them was, should I eat food that was sacrificed to the idols? Because remember, most of the communities in which Paul ministered were pagan cultures. And you would bring an, a, a gift of meat to the temple that would be a false god, and they would offer that meat. But that same meat would be taken out of that temple and sold in the market behind the temple. And the question was, should I buy that or should I eat that meat? Right? And so there was this whole bunch of tension around what we should consume when it comes to these cultural issues. And so they're talking to Paul about something like we're talking about on the topic of alcohol. Look at what 1 Corinthians 10.23 says. They're saying I have this. so the culture says I have a right to do anything. Boy, don't we still hear that today? You can't tell me what to do. I have a right to do anything. Okay, so that's what the culture in Corinth was saying too. I mean, this was a culture that was totally passionately involved in every area of life, much like America today. Okay, I have a right to do anything. You say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but not. Everything is constructive. Listen to how he concludes this thought. No one should seek their own good, but the good of others. The context of this, again, deals with eating meat sacrificed to idols or, or drinking a beverage that was dedicated to the temple. He concludes this whole argument by saying this, 1 Corinthians ten thirty-one to 33. So whether you eat or drink, Or whatever you do. So don't just make it a matter of food and drink. By the way, Paul also says that righteousness, peace, and the joy in the Holy Ghost is what the kingdom of heaven is about, not just food and drink. But he says this, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Now we'd like to end it there, but look at what else he says as it pertains to these culturally tense points. Do not cause anyone to stumble, whether Jews, Greeks, or the church of God. Even as I try to please everyone in every way, for I am not seeking my own good, but the good of many, so that they may be saved. Now, here's the thing. While many items of food or drink may be neutral concerning your Christian testimony, most of us know that alcohol isn't so neutral. Okay, It has emotion attached to it, doesn't it? Because we all have backstories, good, bad, or the other. Everybody has a conversation that comes through this topic and it's not neutral. And why is that? Is it the beverage or is it the behavior? And so one of the things we should be asking when we talk about this issue is not, can a Christian drink alcohol beverages? Maybe the question should be should I drink alcoholic beverages? It's not an issue of is drinking a sin? If I consume an alcoholic beverage, is that a sin? The Bible does not address that as a sin, but here's what it does say. Is it wise? And you might recall the series I did a long time ago called Ask It, and the whole point was, in light of my past failures, in light of my current hopes and, or fu- current circumstances or my future hopes and dreams, what is the wise thing to do? And I think we need to bring this to the conversation of alcohol, because Some of you have an issue with this, and it's a terrible issue. What is the wise thing for you to do? Now, a lot of the confusion around alcohol consumption actually comes from the Bible. Here's why. Because you're going, look, Kelly, look at the Bible. It talks a lot about wine. Isn't that permission to consume alcoholic beverage? I mean, hello, what was Jesus' very first public miracle. Didn't he turn water into wine? I mean, the guest was there. He didn't say this is really good juice. He talked about the best wine saved to the end of the wedding. I mean, isn't that permission to drink? Didn't Paul tell Timothy, hey, have a little bit of wine with your water, not just water because you're drinking impure water and it's making you sick. So have a little wine. And, and yes, In the day in which this was written to Paul, there was a a slight medicinal value to minimal addition of alcohol to water. But that's, you know, there's lots of other ways to deal with issues in pure water today, right? But that was just kind of a a moment of speaking something very practical scripturally. So if the Bible has all these examples of drinking it, then then what is the problem? And we'll find out next week. No, just kidding. So... uh, (laughs) <laughs> I'm going into overtime and I apologize. I'm going to give it to you as quickly as I can. All right, I'll give it to you as quickly as I can. Um, a lot of the appeals to moderate drinking are often based on the use of wine in the Bible. But I think it is critically, critically, critically important for us to understand the differences between the production and use of wine in the biblical times and the production and use of wine or alcoholic beverages. So I'm going to give you very quickly a few things to help build an understanding culturally behind this. So any study of alcoholic use in the the Bible must recognize that there is a a very different comparison to today's consumption and, and, and makeup of alcohol. So here's some differences. Wine of the biblical era generally had lower alcohol Uh, content, in fact, most would say it, it was a seven to ten percent alcoholic beverage on the standard wines that were produced in biblical times. also, ancient wine was commonly diluted before consumption, lest you become drunk, so they would they would water it down so that people would not lose their control. Uh, thirdly, grapes were a staple of the ancient agrarian life and, and commerce I mean they were all over the place they lived among that and so Requiring that they preserve the juice, and oftentimes the only way you could preserve juice in a culture like that without refrigeration was it being fermented and fermentation, thus the watering down of it. And finally, the, the, the distillation process of alcohol and for liquors that we now see served everywhere, that wasn't even developed fully until the Middle Ages. That wasn't a biblical drink, so it wasn't like the throwing back Jack Daniels at, around the Lord's Supper, Okay. Those kinds of hard liquors were not even in development in the day in which this took place. So wines in the Bible had lower content. Let me give you an example. 7 to 10% alcoholic content perhaps in biblical wines. By contrast, modern breweries and distilleries produce table wines and then fortified wines and then hard liquors that have 14% alcohol in the average table wine. 18 to 24% in some of the others, and then 40 to 50 and beyond in some of the hard liquors, the distilled beverages. So when we look at those, we're not comparing apples to apples. Okay? We can't just say alcohol use today is the same as it was in the Bible, because it's very different today. So while it the Bible doesn't address consumption specifically, it does address the effects of overconsumption. So one of the things we can be very biblically clear on is God's view of drunkenness. And this is the deception behind alcohol, is it tends to move us one way or the other, doesn't it? And for a lot of people, they are just genetically disposed toward overconsumption. So there's a deception, a danger to alcoholic beverages. Others don't have a problem with this, and we're going to come to a closing thought today on some viewpoints and that. But the Bible is very clear on drunkenness, right? Here's some examples. I'll give them to you quickly. In fact, stories of drunkenness in the Bible were never painted in positive lights, okay? Activity you see in Scripture is not permission to do the activity. So Noah gets drunk, okay? This is after they land on the land. He gets drunk from the fruit of the vine, and in his tent, some very inappropriate things happen. Lot gets drunk, And when he's drunk, his daughters take advantage of him, and there's incest. So we don't say that this is all painted very properly and in very good light when we see examples of drunkenness in Scripture. But here's what the Bible says specifically about it. Uh, Ephesians 5.18, do not get drunk on wine. Why? It leads to debauchery, which is a loss of control, all right? Being yielded to the control of the substance. Instead, be filled with the Spirit, Romans 13, 13, let us behave decently. Now he's talking to the Romans who loved their beverages. Let us behave decently as in the daytime, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and debauchery, not in dissension and jealousy. Notice the playing field that drunkenness is placed into is the same as sexual immorality and all these other things. And there's verses, if you have the notes, you can go through and find a bunch more. Uh, But here's one, Proverbs 20, verse 1. Wine is a mocker and beer a brawler. I'm sure you've probably seen that before at the local bar. Whoever is led astray by them, and that's the propensity of alcoholic consumption, those who are led astray are not wise. So here's the thing we know about alcoholism, or at least alcohol. It has a built-in specific danger. And this is the part we have to understand, because most alcoholics will tell you, I don't have a problem. Unless they recognize they have a problem. So you find a person who overconsumes, You begin to speak to their life. What is their answer? I don't have a problem. You have a problem. I don't have a problem. It's so self-deceptive. They can't see it in themselves, right? But you've seen it. You've felt the effects, perhaps, of that person who drank too much. But even beyond the, the built-in deception and all the loss of inhibition, and all the stuff that comes with drinking, here's, as Christians, where we need to land this plane. And it comes around matters of conscience and your Christian testimony. Write down Romans 14, look at it later, because he deals with this issue of conscience. But his whole point is, friends, my freedom should not be fully expressed at the expense of causing my brother to stumble or my sister to stumble. Now, here's the benefit today versus the Bible. And this is, you know, again, I love the, the, the stances for alcohol. I, I get it. But here's the thing. We have a lot more beverage options today than they had in Bible times in Jerusalem or in the Judeans area. I mean, it was either bad water, wine. They had some other fresh drinks they could have, but we don't have Pepsi, Diet Pepsi, Coke, Diet Coke, Coke Zero, energy drinks, tea. I mean, come on, you know what I'm saying? I don't have to immediately go from either drinking water to alcohol because that's the only two things I have to drink right now, right? I mean, there's a lot. We have a lot of flexibility. Okay, so knowing that. I'm just saying, here's where we have to be wise. We have to be wise. This calls for wisdom. So what am I trying to say? How you post or display your use of alcohol is beyond your control. You understand that? People are going to see it, and they're going to judge based on that. So why would I want to do something intentionally that may cause a brother or sister to stumble? And this is the part we don't like, because I want to live my life my way. Why do I have to think about other people? Well, because the Bible says that as Christians, we're called to not think of our own interests, but the interests of others. Now, I know I've made some of you mad at me right now. I'm not making a rule out of this. I'm telling you my viewpoint. I'm telling you the Bible's use of alcohol in in Jesus' time versus today. And I'm telling you that it calls for wisdom in this issue. What you do with the information is is up to you. I'm not going to watch your Facebook feeds now and go, oh, look at that, Mm -mm." unfollow that person. I mean, that's not what I'm going to do. But here's what you and I know because I saw all the hands that were raised. We all know the dangers inherent to consuming alcoholic beverages. So if I have the opportunity to lose my Christian witness, to cause a brother to stumble, because I want to exercise my own freedom, I'm, I've got that backwards. And that's what Paul addressed in the church in the day and we address today. Our time is over. Let me pray. And that was a nice rhyme. <laughs> Lord, we, we pause in these moments because we know these are cultural hot topics. The hornets are flying around. We know that it's just there. And we talk about these things. And it's hard because so many times these can divide a church. But, Lord, we want to be people who approach your word to find what it says and then to live according. So when we look at the alcohol in in Scripture, we don't see an expressed forbiddenness of drinking, but we do see the built-in danger inherently of doing that. And the question is, is that even wise for us to consider? Knowing that it might cause our own damage or to damage the Christian testimony or, or the faith of another? Is it worth it? So it calls for wisdom on our parts. And so I ask that, Lord, that we'd be wise in how we navigate, not just in our culture, not just in our community, but how we live biblically. We'd be wise in that area. Lord, I, I think again of how we treat people who are outsiders around us. Even in our own community, we have We have strangers and aliens. We have folks that are not here legally. And I pray you would touch our hearts about how we're to respond to this issue right here in our own community. Remind us that we're an expression of your love and your grace. Even with people who are not currently living under what our government would say is legal or illegal. But help us to respond by our higher citizenship to the truth of what you did, Jesus. And again, Lord, for those who have just been uh, wounds opened over issues of abortion, abortion or miscarriage. God, I just pray healing today in the name of Jesus. God, all of us, I know, have not just, this is not just topics, this is real life for a lot of people. So I just pray for your ministry and their hearts, and I pray they'd be hungrier to dive deeper into Scripture to discover truth on their own about these issues. So we thank you for it today. In Jesus' name. Amen.